Amen. Um, as we look to the word this morning, again, I, I, I have a very specific goal or assignment in my heart. Paul's jealousy in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, cannot be understood unless you first realize the season or the scenario in life that Paul was living in when God chose to reveal himself to him in an extraordinary way. In Philippians chapter 3, we find words that just remain information alone unless we create a unique context from which these words came out of what was Paul's burning heart and jealousy to know God in a great way. In Acts 9, we realize that Paul was a murderer. He was an assassin of sorts. He was persecuting the church of God, standing over the dying body of Stephen in a way to arrogantly endorse his eliminating of those that had aligned their lives with what was called the way. This Jesus people, this peculiar people that was flooding the ancient world and flourishing with radiant faces in the purposes of God by the power of God were becoming a real problem and an annoyance to people like Paul. Paul's historical understanding of himself, a zealot, a Pharisee, all of the right upbringing and religious pedigree, all of the history that created leverage for him with particular platform and influence and power and accolades and appreciation and applause from, yes, unique compartments of society, being the religious world, but then an understanding of an exclusivity of sorts as he lived his life in what he considered to be the things of God. But living his life in the things of God, Paul understood that there was a cancer that was alive on the inside of him. He understood that even though a perfection according to systematic things, according to organizational endeavors, and a flawless approach to the religiosity and the visible formalities of what was considered to be the spiritual life, Paul knew that according to those things, he may have been considered blameless. But he did not ever consider himself to be sinless. And he understood that on the inside, there was a corruption that was alive. And what was unique to Paul was that while running 100 miles an hour, doing his own thing and what he considered to be serving God, he ended up running in the wrong way, yet running right into a revelation of God. And he did not realize the error of his ways until God chose to reveal himself to him. What extraordinary kindness and mercy from the person of God revealed even as it was in the encounter that Paul had with the man Jesus. What extraordinary kindness does it demonstrate that while a man is living deeply entrenched in religiosity, completely immersed in his own agenda, satisfied with all of his own programming for his appetites and endeavors, that God would uniquely intersect or intervene with a man that was hostile towards what God was doing in the day that Paul was running. And Paul understood 
Later on, he would communicate it this way. I realized that I was the chief of sinners. He says, I realized that while I was a murderer, an accuser, a blasphemer, while I was persecuting the church of God and actually uh, uh, coming against and eliminating those who had aligned their lives with the way God chose to be gracious to me. In Galatians 1, he would say that at the right time, God revealed his son to him and in him so that he could begin preaching Jesus among the Gentiles. Paul's life was apprehended in an encounter with God. Paul was deeply on every possible level and layer, every space and place. He was confronted by the unveiling of God in a greater way than he had ever known the Lord. We know this. What did Paul say when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus? Who are you, Lord? I've lived decades of my life deeply immersed in what I thought were the things of God, and I don't even know you. Who is this man that I'm encountering, that I'm being confronted by? If you don't understand how Paul was living when God chose to reveal himself to him, then you'll never get traction with the jealousy that Paul had to grow up into the knowledge of God. Because Paul's growing up in God was by a deeper anchoring in the knowledge of God. It wasn't like Paul started with the unveiling of God and then became a perfectionist with all of the trivial external things of this life. Right? To the Galatians, what does he say? He says, you started so well by the Spirit or in the Spirit. Have you now abandoned the way that God revealed himself to you and how God got traction with you in the beginning days, which was with a revelation of himself? It was by the knowledge of God. Have you abandoned the work or the way of the spirit to now become perfected in the flesh? Paul's jealousy remained over the course of his life. A deep desire to know God in an extraordinary way. It was to know the Lord. It wasn't the knowledge of God simply intellectually, informationally. It wasn't some, uh, some pursuit that could be satisfied in a relative way by research alone. You know, at times we think that if we access enough information about God that it means we actually know him. But then we realize that we find ourselves in seasons where the information that we've acquired over time is not sustaining me to where I can thrive in the most difficult or the most successful places that life will bring me. And you begin to understand that your knowledge of God may not have necessarily been what you hoped it was. And the way that you find that out is when you encounter a season where all of the things you thought about who God was is not actually working for you by keeping you consistent in the place of faithful devotion in the different seasons that life may bring you to. And you find yourself in seasons of life where you begin accusing a God that you said you loved. You find yourself in seasons of life where you intentionally or unintentionally begin to betray the Lord because of misunderstanding, 
because of deception, because of invitation to follow what Jesus would have considered to be in John 10, other voices. He says, my sheep know my voice and another they will not follow. I know those that are mine and they listen to me and they do what I say. Paul's jealousy remained the knowledge of God. Actually, it's the way that as an apostle and a church planter, a preacher and a teacher, the consistency of Paul's jealousy to anchor people in the knowledge of God remained throughout the course of his life. Because Paul understood that nothing else over long periods of time is actually going to be able to get it done. And when I say get it done, I mean keep people aligned to the person of God and to the purposes of God. Paul did not anchor churches in man's gifting and personality. Paul did not anchor churches in simple behaviors or activities alone. We understand that even the devotional efforts of our life, whether it be time in the word, time in worship, fasting and praying, the place of intercession, the corporate fellowship of the family, or smaller family units and intersections, whether it be the celebration of the table of the Lord and meals together as a people or as a family, all of these are a means to an end. They are not in and of themselves the means alone or the end alone. They're a means to an end because the end is to know God in a greater way than we ever have. And so we're not trying to satisfy our own agenda even in these other things that we could categorize or classify as tools. They're tools. I pray because I want to know God in a greater way. I don't pray so that I can tell people I spent 30 minutes in the secret place. I don't pray so that I can tell people and build a resume off of time in some space where that time is not actually advancing me in knowing God in a greater way than I have. So all of these other aspects of what could be considered the spiritual life, it's a means to an end. And Paul understood you have to anchor people in the knowledge of God because the knowledge of God alone is going to sustain you over every season that life is going to bring you. It's to know the Lord in a deep, real, and intimate way so that your life being anchored in the knowledge of God can actually bring you to be beautiful in every season, to thrive in God's purposes regardless of assignment or context. It can bring you under his love and under his leadership so that now in the way that you know him, you are actually living in consistent and real, raw, unadulterated freedom to where the pressures of this life don't dismantle the revelation of God that you've apprehended over time spent with him. Because what an interesting place to be where you think you know the Lord and then one right circumstance or season utterly destroys, meaning the traction of God's love and purposes in your heart and life, absolutely destroys God's leadership in your life based off of how you had built your spiritual life up until that point. And this was Paul's jealousy. It can't be on any of the facades. It can't be on any of the games, the gimmicks. 
It can't be on any of the hoopla, the externals. It can't be based off of man's personality. It can't be based off of your own gifting. It can't be based off of your own agenda and all of the ways that you can determine maturity or success by redefining the terms or the metrics. It is and will always be this. We have to know God in a deep way, in a real way for ourselves. This was Paul's jealousy, to know the Lord. And when I say knowledge of God, what I mean by knowledge of God is a living, vibrant, relational, experiential fellowship. To know God in an intimate way as a real person. And to have your life transformed over time by interaction, fellowship in an intimate way with the person of God as he continues to unveil himself, to disclose himself, to reveal himself to you intimately, individually, as you set your life, as you anchor your life in the pursuit of the knowledge of God. This cannot be substituted, and it cannot be manufactured. Anybody who's walked with God long enough, you realize you can't make him do anything. You can try. You can try to manipulate, right? Like at times we try to manipulate God with all our devotional efforts, right? Well, if I, if I fast for 40 days, then that means God's got a God's got a nothing. That's what that means. That means God's got a nothing because he's not subject to you. You're subject to him. We're his people. We've come under his love and leadership in a transformative way. And not just in an agenda-driven way. Well, man, maybe if I pray six hours a day, then God's got it. No, God's got a nothing. You can't even get in the prayer closet and make God reveal himself to you. <laughs> you can't make God do anything. God has to choose out of his own desire to do what he pleases to do. You can't manufacture a revelation of God. You can't make God do anything. And Paul understood that out of God's extraordinary kindness, while he was living in deception, while he was living in a religious facade, while he was deeply immersed in the satisfaction of his own agenda and hostile to what God was authentically doing, God chose to reveal himself to Paul. Isaiah 65, Isaiah would prophesy it this way. I chose to reveal myself to a people that weren't even looking for me to a people that had no interest for me. And I think somewhere along the way, we get it off track. We understand that at one point, we were living for the world. At one point, we were broken. We were living in sin. There was a darkness that held us captive. And God chose, out of his own kindness, to reveal his son to us. There was a move of God's spirit in our lives that redeemed us, that restored us, that raised us from the dead. And then somewhere along the way, even though we all understand that in the beginning, we didn't have anything to do with it. In the beginning, we were living as a rebel to God and God chose out of his own extraordinary kindness to reveal himself to us. But then yet somewhere along the way, we feel like we've acquired certain formulas to manipulate God to make him do things based off of our intentions, demands, or efforts. And Paul said none of that is going to work over long periods of time. The only thing that is going to successfully keep 
God's people is the knowledge of God. You have to know the Lord for yourself. All of these other incentives and attractions, they lose their luster and they fade. All of these other dreams, ambitions, or goals, they end up fizzling out or being tried by fire and being burned away over longer periods of time. And there's just something about time that Paul understood. Paul was no overnight success. Jesus was revealed in his life in Acts 9. And then you have a decade and a half where Paul is unheard of. He's off the radar. And he's not secretly getting some graphic designer to put together a ministry logo for him and building a website and getting a podcast platform together so that in his right moment he can begin to shine. He's not doing these things. He's baptized into the knowledge of God and anchored in the midst of a people. And he's being faithful in a church family in an unheard of way for 15 years almost. Even though Jesus personally revealed himself to him. Many of us, we wouldn't have been able to keep you in the seat for three months. If Jesus came to you personally, boy, you'd have a YouTube channel You'd have a podcast. Nobody could tell you nothing, right? Like, oh, no, bro, God didn't reveal himself to you the way that he did to me. I've got the juice. I've got the goods. I've got oil. Paul understood it doesn't matter. There's no overnight success. In Paul's jealousy to communicate to a younger leader that he considered to be a son, Timothy, an apostolic figure, a church planter, in the city of Ephesus, Paul would have written to him this way in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Hey, you're looking for people that you're gonna trust with leadership in God's house, let me help you with some metrics to kind of identify folks that are worthy of such an endeavor. And not worthy as if we're uh, creating a totem pole, right, of value, right? Assignment doesn't reveal value. We're all valuable to God uh, in an irrespectable way, meaning like God values us individually immensely. Assignment is different though. Bearing unique responsibility with grace from God or a particular anointing to function a certain way that God may call us to, especially in the place of a relational influence that Paul would have considered to be leadership. And so he's writing to Timothy. And we know he says certain things. But in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 3, he says, A man can't be a new convert. Don't consider such a person for leadership because he's going to fall into the same temptation as the devil. That's going to be the trap. That's going to be the place of error. That's going to be the situation that his heart is going to be tested by. The same temptation as the devil. Well, that's an interesting statement to make to somebody. Well, we can't consider you for leadership because you're gonna be tested to fall into the same temptation as the devil. But Paul says that you couldn't consider a new believer or a new convert Why? What was the temptation of the devil? The temptation of the devil was to use an understanding of individual gifting and agenda in a way that wasn't surrendered to God's leadership. Let's hear that one more time. It was to use an understanding of individual gifting and agenda in a way that wasn't submitted to God's leadership. In Isaiah 14, he is the self-exalted 
I will exalt my throne into the place of the heavens, and I will be established. I will be exalted above the God who is the Most High. He's the one that in Ezekiel 30 or 28 became infatuated with himself, fell in love with his own beauty and image, and in a refusal to subject himself to God's transforming love and leadership, led into sin and corruption and had to be cast down. Paul says that there's something about new converts where they have not yet been tested with enough life, the crucible of being faithful to God over unique time periods where the different seasons of life apply different pressures to the human experience and the heart that's going to reveal whether or not a person is actually anchored in the knowledge of God or not. And he says you cannot consider someone for leadership based off of gifting or ability alone. Well, if I'm not going to go with the scriptures, then I have to begin to create other metrics for maturity or success. And now I have to relate to people and consider people based off of what they do. What they contribute. Well, you don't understand, brother. I've sang in the church for 20 years. Who cares? What you do doesn't mean that God has been able to grow you up over time. Time alone is not the factor or the sole basis that is equal to maturity. Well, I've been in the church for five years, 15 years, 55 years. None of that means that you've actually anchored your life in a deep end of the knowledge of God. And it is undeniable that there are some that know the Lord better than others. Otherwise, Paul would have never had a jealousy or a humility or a confidence to say, follow me as I follow him. That would imply I, to a certain degree, know what I'm doing. And it would also imply that to a certain degree, you need to follow me. Why? Because I know what I'm doing. And by default, it would assume maybe you don't know what you're doing the way you think you do. Because time and seasons have revealed whether or not we're actually anchored in the knowledge of God the way that we thought we were. But where the actual substance of God in the life of a person becomes a resource in the midst of a community. This is how Paul saw his life. He saw himself now as a resource. My life has become a broker of God's desires in the midst of a people. Paul planted a people, a church, communities, covenant people on the knowledge of God. And used and understood his own life as a resource to access the knowledge of God in the midst of a community. He would say in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, we didn't just come and preach the gospel to you, but you were so near and dear to us that we chose to share our very life with you. He would pray and exhort the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, I'm praying for you that a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God would actually come upon you so that your heart can be illuminated, so that you can begin to understand the mysteries of God that are now the inheritance for the saints. 
to the church in Colossae in chapter 1, he would say something similar. He would say, ever since I heard about you, I've been praying for you. That you be filled. I got Jesus on the main line. Um, He would say that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. With all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So that you can walk pleasing to him in every season. Bearing fruit or living a fruitful life with every good deed and or work. And growing up and or increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul's jealousy was the knowledge of God. And it was to know the Lord. So let me ask you this. Do you know the Lord in a way currently that can bring you to thrive in any season that God would bring you to? Do you know the Lord in such a way or has the knowledge of God in your own life been apprehended in a way that would allow you to flourish in every season, to remain anchored in God through trials and triumphs, sorrows and celebrations? Do you know the Lord in a way that keeps you grounded and consistent in the place of your devotion and in your faithfulness to the Lord, in your alignment with God as a real person and his purposes, despite what might be the immediate emotional instabilities. Your emotions are terrible leaders. We don't get grounded in our emotions, we get grounded in God. We get grounded in his transforming love and his leadership to us. We consistently need the exposure of the word and the influence of the spirit in our lives. But do you know the Lord in a way that is going to allow you to success in every season? Well, that depends on what's your determiner or your definition of success. Paul in Philippians 4 would say it this way, starting in verses 11 and 12. We all know 13. But in 11 and 12, he says, I'm actually not talking to you because I have some great need. He's like, my communication is not being leveraged because of some crazy pressure that I'm under to try to get you to do something or to be something. He's like, I've had to learn over a long period of time now. I've been walking with Jesus now for two plus decades. And there are certain things that you can only learn over longer periods of time. There are certain things to access in the knowledge of God that can only be accessed over longer periods of time. It has nothing to do with love. It has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with God's desire to reveal himself or to unfold the knowledge of God to a person or a people over extensive amounts of time. You just didn't get everything that there was to know about God in the moment that you were born again. Even as it was when I married my wife. I loved her on that day. I loved her deeply. I was committed to her for the rest of my life. But now, almost 17 years in, it's the strangest thing. I love her more now than I did on that day when we stood at the altar. But it's because my love has been tested. My love has been refined. My love has had to go through a variety of seasons of life where my choice for her remained consistent. I didn't get to choose her once and think that choice one time, one day, extended itself over the remainder of my life. It's almost like when God puts them in the garden in the beginning. 
And he says, out of all the trees of the garden, I am telling you, don't touch these two. Well, how many trees were there? Were there 10? We know that the earth was full in their immediate uh, respective context. The whole world was that region of the world at that time. So we know that the earth was full of everything that they needed in order to flourish. How many trees? 10? 1,000? 25,000? 100,000? Out of 100,000 options, just don't touch these two. Why? Because I want you to choose me. If God pre-programmed us to love and obey, there would be no choosing of him. One of the ways that we demonstrate love is by the consistent choice that we make to love and to honor and to obey the covenant boundaries. God wants to be chosen. Out of all of the trees, don't touch these two. Why? I want you to choose me. It's one of the ways you're going to demonstrate love for me, is you're going to choose to come under my leadership. You're going to choose to obey me. You're going to choose to be a people that are mine, and the way you demonstrate my possession of you is by a consistent or an ongoing loving obedience that I will ask of you. Paul understood that at times it takes massive amounts of time in order for a person's life. Now, that's not supposed to be discouraging to someone who hasn't been walking with the Lord for a long time. All it means is that you can't manufacture history. It means you can't lay your hands on someone and give them decades of the knowledge of God. Well, brother, I want you to lay your hands on me because God told me that I'm supposed to have a double portion of what's on your life. <laughs> um, I remember at one time, Reinhard being in a meeting and preaching, Reinhard Bonnke, for anyone who knows who that is. Um, and afterwards, a young man approaching him and saying, I came all this way from such and such a place to be to the meeting, and man, God gave me a word, and the Lord spoke to me, and I'm supposed to be here, and I can't believe that I actually get an opportunity in the altar to interact with you because it's happening just the way that God told me that it was going to happen. And Reinhardt said, young man, what is it that you've come this morning seeking? And the young man looked at Reinhardt, young preacher, zeal for God, earlier stage of life, maybe mid-20s. Reinhardt is towards the end of his life had walked with God faithfully for decades, had known the Lord, and had paid a severe price to know God and to remain faithful to him over a long period of time. And the young man looked at Reinhardt and he said, God told me that if you laid your hands on me, that he was going to give me a double portion of what's on your life. Will you pray for me? And Reinhardt said, young man, I will pray for you. And you can imagine how ecstatic this young guy was. And I say young guy because I'm in my 40s now and people that are in their 20s are young. I'm no longer a part of the altar call for the next generation, right? Like those that God's going to use in a powerful way, like this is the now generation. I, that's not me anymore. And he said, young man, I will pray for you. And man, this dude, tears start streaming down his face and he put his hands out to receive and Reinhardt laid his hand on him. And he said, Lord, I'm asking you to slap the lazy spirit off of this young man who thinks he can get in a moment 
what I have painfully paid for with my whole life to be able to access in God. Paul's life became a resource, and out of that resource, it created a jealousy because Paul understood this has to be the gauge of success, how well you know the Lord. Now, we, in our own preoccupation with the things of this life and other endeavors or ambitions, at times we learn how to mask our superficiality in God by a redefining of the terms. And so we use worldly accolades or accomplishments in order to leverage influence or success stories. We use influence or ambitions or platforms or prominence in a variety of ways. Paul was not building prominence based off of how well he could communicate. He wasn't building influence based off of the guys that he ran with. He wasn't creating some sort of influence off of how much money he raised or all of these other endeavors or ends. And in our day, we are ascribing influence and notoriety to people that don't necessarily have access to the knowledge of God the way that Paul was jealous for. And at times, we mask our superficiality based off of other incentives. And so we want to talk about other things than God when the conversation of maturity or success comes up. But Paul understood. He said, I've had a variety of seasons over a long time now. Philippians 4, 11 and 12. He says, I've had nothing and I've had everything. And I've realized that there was testing on both sides. Right? It's the rich young ruler who becomes defined for more than 2,000 years by what he was unwilling to turn over to God. He becomes remembered by the thing that he was unwilling to let go. By the thing that he was unwilling to let God have. Personally confronted by the man Jesus and invited to follow Jesus his way. And it says, rich, young, and a leader. He has influence. And this young leader, the influence alive in his heart for the appetite of the things of the world, brought him to the place that when he evaluated the invitation, he reasoned for himself. I would ask you, what wisdom governs your life? He reasoned for himself that he was unwilling to separate himself, to be detached, to be redefined by turning over his material worth or equity or possessions. Where was the covenant friend in the rich young ruler's life that was able to look at him and to say, bro, you don't understand. In this season, it's the most merciful thing that God could do for you. What? Go and give away all of your stuff and come back and follow me my way. Why would you say that that's God's mercy demonstrated to me? Because you're in love with the world and you just don't know it. You're in love with the world and it has traction in your appetites. It has traction in your affections. 
You're in love with your own material stature, with your own real estate, with all of your possessions. You're in love with your corporate ambitions and your bank account. You're in love with all of the things that the world prides itself on, and you just haven't realized it yet. But God knows things about you that you haven't realized about you. And the rich young ruler was experiencing God's grace in the most kind and extraordinary way. How? Inviting him to obey him in a way that would redefine him. But the rich young ruler was a refusing person to even consider a redefinition or a re-identification with God and his purposes. But where was the person in his life that would say, no, you need to obey the Lord this way? I'm telling you, we can rally agreement out of our own rebellion to God's leadership. We can rally people around us that will agree with our rejection of God's influence and leadership. What do I mean like that? I'm sure that the rich young ruler had a host of people that rallied around him that understood his scenario. Well, bro, there's no way that God's asking you to give it all up, bro, because, man, you're going to become such a valuable resource, and, man, out of all of your stuff that you have, and God's going to leverage this and use this, and he's going to do this, and you're going to get traction this way. Why? Because we couldn't possibly understand. We couldn't possibly qualify or determine the voice of God to us personally that would bring us to a place to abandon everything that we have determined brings us the value or the definition that we've always desired. But Paul says, I've had both seasons. I've had seasons where I had everything and I've had seasons where I had nothing. And I've learned that neither season defined me because I'm free. My life is anchored in the knowledge of God. And I know who I am because I know who he is. And he's actually done something in me that frees me from the demand of a context. I no longer require a certain feel or place or experience. I'm free. And I'm actually one of the freest people on the face of the earth because my life is not defined by the things that I have. My life is not defined by the assignment on my life. My life is not defined by the possessions or the materialistic endeavors or by the relationships or the social circles or influence that I might have or not have. He says, I've realized over a long period of time, it's Christ in me. Because God is working all things together for those that love him. For those that are called by his name and aligned to his purpose. God is using your successes and your failures. And neither one of those are meant to permanently define you. God is using your ups and downs, your ins and outs, your five steps forward, ten steps backwards, as it may seem in the natural way of viewing this life. God is using it all, and he's using it all together for those that love him, that are called by his name, that are aligned to his purpose. And what is his purpose? It's the knowledge of God revealed or unfolded in the life of a person that then becomes a resource to God's purposes throughout the nations of the earth. Well, God can put me anywhere because I actually know him. And I'm willing to go anywhere and do anything. Well, we say that, sing that, pray that until God asks us to do the thing that we didn't want to do. 
right? And in most cases, what we do over time is we acquire enough knowledge of God to satisfy our own individual agenda. And then we apply what is our sometimes limited or superficial knowledge of God to our own understanding of our gifting and ambitions. And in an unsurrendered way, we run wild until we run into a season that reveals we don't really know the Lord the way that we thought we did or the way that we wanted to. Because the knowledge of God is tested circumstantially and invitationally. What I mean by that is I've been through devastating situations in my life. We were just having a conversation with the kids, as a matter of fact, this previous Monday morning. Uh, in our, they're on summer break now, so we have family devotions and uh, whatever. But sitting with the kids and saying, because we love Jesus, we're not exempt from real life. And we're going to go through real life. And real life is going to test us. It's going to try us. It's going to press us. We don't live in some self-preserved bubble because we honor the Lord with love and obedience. And at times, we're going to have to go through life. And life is going to hit us, and it's going to hit us hard, because sometimes life is hard. Right? Life is not always skipping through the tulips and some you know, fairy tale playground experience. Sometimes life is really, really hard. But God is good. And it's why we have to have our life anchored in the knowledge of God. Because when life gets really hard, Man, and I'm telling you, if you've been through the press, if you've been through the fire, if you've been tried, if, if you've been tried, then you understand what I'm saying. Life at times can be really, really, really hard. And at times you realize things about yourself that you didn't actually know were in there. And other times it creates a jealousy for you to have things in there that when the moment called for it, weren't actually there the way that you wanted it to. And at times it's circumstantial where we go through things in life and man, it presses us. And it desires to break us. But what happens is it breaks us open and it reveals how our life is anchored in the knowledge of God. And it's the way that we've known the Lord over time in his goodness and his faithfulness that anchors us and keeps us grounded and consistent in circumstances or seasons that should have utterly derailed us and devastated us. I should have became an addict, but I actually know the Lord. I should have turned to porn. I should have turned to a love of money. I should have turned to da-da-da-da-da, this, that, whatever. But I actually know God. And other times it's invitational, where the Lord will invite us to obey him in certain ways that reveals certain resistance that's alive on the inside of us. And most of the time, the resistance that's alive on the inside is based off of an appetite that God longs to conquer. And until he asks you to do something that you realize you really don't want to do, you begin to understand that the cause that creates that effect is an appetite alive on the inside that has not yet been conquered in order for you to restfully, joyfully, confidently do whatever it is that God is asking you to do. Paul says, I know the Lord well enough to live in any type of season. This is challenging. I remember in 2020 when we went through a miscarriage and I asked the Lord, I honestly don't know if my heart can handle this. And at times I would sit with God 
And I would say, Lord, I know you, but this is really difficult to reconcile. I know you're good. You have revealed yourself to me over an extensive amount of time right now. And though I don't understand what I'm going through, I'm not going to let it completely undo how I know you. And so as hard as this may be, Lord, give me grace to stay grounded and to stay consistent. There are times where circumstances or unique invitations reveal things about us. And that's why Paul understood that contextually, it has to be the knowledge of God. You have to contend for the knowledge of God. Remaining uh, superficial, remaining imitation, remaining image-based, external, these things have to go. They have to go. We have to begin to contend for the knowledge of God in our life. We have to press into God and to say, I have to know you, Lord. I have to know you, Lord. I'm jealous to know you, Lord. Lord, if you'll give yourself to me the way that you've given yourself to others, I want to know you, and I'm here for it. I'm ready to start building history in an ongoing way. I'm ready to start abandoning other lovers and pursuits if it means that you're going to make yourself accessible to me. One of the most outrageous statements that there is to make is God is available. God is available. God is available. And he can be known in the way that our hearts would be jealous for. Now, you can't make it happen, but you can give yourself to the process over long periods of time. In Philippians 3, we'll close with these words. And we're going to pray, and we're going to pray in a specific way. But in Philippians chapter 3, listen to Paul in verses 7 to 10. This is a man whose life was conquered. He was radically redefined by the way that God revealed himself to him. He says, but whatever things were a gain to me, those things I've counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Let's pause. What is he saying? The way that I used to resume build and define success for my life is all trash because I found something more valuable. I found something that is more supreme. I found something that eclipses what used to be all of my other jealousies and desires. All of the other applause of the world, all of the other stature with material things and the successes and the applauses that are be had there. He says all of the religious formalities and the successes according to systems, all of that is now garbage because I want to know him. And that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In simple terms, we could hear Paul this way. 
you would never understand who I am and the way that I live my life unless you saw him the way that he revealed himself to me. You can judge me, you can criticize me, you can talk about me, you can speculate, you can come up with all of your own conclusions based off of what you think, but you'd never be able to understand me unless you saw him the way that I saw him. You'd never be able to know what moves me unless he revealed himself to you the way that he revealed himself to me. Paul said, I saw him and it changed everything. I encountered him and the knowledge of God in my life transformed me and redefined my whole trajectory. He said, the way that I used to interpret my life in the knowledge of God, it put to death every other endeavor that I used to associate with what success meant. He says, I've lost everything for the sake of knowing him. I have willingly turned over everything to the one that revealed himself to me. And I'm not complaining about it. I'm not walking around bragging about how I'm sacrificing for it. I'm not trying to upend everybody based off of the things that I'm doing for God to pay a price for the things that God is asking me to do. No, I joyfully, restfully, I saw in him what I always wanted. What I never found in the systems alone, what I never found in all of the activities or the other incentives or attractions alone. My desire for power never did it. My desire for influence and platform and prestige never broke me into what God so kindly revealed of himself to me. And he says it redefined my life. And God did something in me by revealing himself to me that grounded me in him, and I've lost everything for him. What a joy it is to be raised from the dead of self-preservation, of self-agenda. What a joy it is to know the freedom found on the other side of clinging to the person that I've always demanded God make me or the things that I've always demanded God give me if it were going to mean that he were blessing me or with me. What the rich young ruler didn't understand is that right on the other side of everything that he always held on to that he was unwilling to let go was real life, was real freedom, was real peace, was real joy. Paul said, I've lost everything for him because I've become his. Let's stand together this morning. I'm gonna pray for you. And then in a specific way, we're gonna close together. But as I pray for you, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning would do a work and provide grace in order for us to come under God's transforming love and his leadership in a greater way than we've ever known. Paul said, he revealed himself to me. 
and it changed everything. And things I thought I cared about, I no longer cared about. Interests, desires, appetites that were still alive on the inside of me, God conquered them by his grace. When he revealed himself to me, it actually transformed in me things that I knew that were real about me that had always held me or kept me captive or bound to a certain way of life. I'm believing that God is going to issue grace this morning as his spirit is at work in the midst of us and that uniquely personally in each one of our hearts, God is going to do an extraordinary work where by his grace, we are able to let go of anything and everything that would have an influence or a traction on the inside that would resist his love or his leadership in any possible way. So Lord, all across the room, oh, King Jesus, all across the room, Holy Spirit, I'm praying. The word works. The word works. The word is alive, it's living, it's active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts, it divides, it pierces, it separates. It creates a distinction or a contrast between flesh and spirit, bone and marrow. What's me, what's God, what's the world, what's the spirit? So I'm praying this morning that through the evaluation that by your grace Lord you would perform the work by your grace the surgery required uniquely in each one of our hearts in order to bring us in a greater way under your transforming love and the power of your leadership in each one of our lives. Lord, would you do what we've never been able to do? Would you do what the world can't do, what money can't buy, what relational resources in a worldly way will never be able to produce? We want to be the people of God. And so uniquely, Lord, individually, all across the room, I'm praying, touch our hearts. Paul had a jealousy to know you and not to define success or maturity in his life in any other way. Lord, we want this jealousy. If we don't have it, Lord, give it to us. Bring it to life like great wildfire on the inside to be willing to pay any price, to do anything, to come up under your leadership in any way to know you. Lord, I want to know you, whatever it takes. Lord, I want to know you. Whatever price to pay, Lord, I want to know you. Lord, would you anchor your people here in the knowledge of God in a way that would make them peculiar in this city. Have a peculiar people for yourself in this city. Have a people that can be beautiful in every season here. Have a people that can thrive in the purposes of God, regardless of circumstantial or invitational context. Lord, you have to do that. And so we're asking you to do it by your grace this morning. And would you pour out your spirit upon us in a fresh way, 
to accomplish that work. Pour out your spirit upon us to accomplish that work.